School of Art, lots of exciting things happening. Um, all right, tonight, Max Stirner. How many people have heard of Max Stirner? Just a quick poll. One person. Ah, yes. So, um, I, think, I think you're in for a treat, personally. Um, Max Stirner. So, certainly, it fills the bill of a forgotten philosopher. When such a literate and knowledgeable audience has not heard of him, I think that means he has been forgotten. It turns out there's periodic Max Stirner booms, and then he goes to zero. So he's sort of a boomer bust stock market guy. Um, but I want to start by, by saying we've had this tragic event in, in Paris this following week uh, that modeled many other tragic events. And one of the questions that people always ask is, how is it that someone decides that they, they are going to kill a bunch of people when they know they're going to die themselves. How, how is this possible? What drives someone to do this? Um, what, is this what, what, what are they thinking, essentially? What are they feeling? Why? Max Stirner's philosophy asked this as a central question. And he has a response to the Paris attacks that you will not hear from anybody, I assure you, uh, online or on the news media or anyplace else because he rejects the kind of philosophical or intellectual social drives that lead to something like the Paris attack. But he rejects them absolutely. And so in understanding something like what's going on um, when you have these sort of suicide bomber fanaticism, it's really helpful to look back at, at a, a period of thinking where at least Stirner, for his part, really did respond aggressively to this sort of event. Um, <clears throat> He was born in, well, when was he born? 1806 to 1856. He, he lived in a very uh, rich cultural environment, but also filled with much social upheaval. And the front part I hear, I, I give you a map, and this is of the Revolution of 1848. Um, in 1848, in the course of about six weeks, there were revolutionary movements in Italy, France, Belgium, Switzerland, German states. There wasn't really a Germany per se, but there were German states. Habsburg Empire, Switzerland, Ireland, Sweden, Hungary, and a lot more. I mean, on this map, you can see all kinds of governments overthrown, places where there are violent clashes. But within truly a matter of just a few weeks, there were major revolutionary outbreaks in almost every um, capital city in, in Europe. There was an extraordinary outburst of popular resistance to what was going on at the times. Um, Stirner was in a, in, a, in a sort of political group or a free thinkers group that included people like Bruno Bauer, um, Friedrich Engels, uh, Karl Marx, you may have heard of him, um, this sort of uh, milieu. And in his world, in his life, what was happening is the industrialization of, of the world was beginning to really accelerate. So in a city like Berlin saw its population tr triple or quadruple in 50 years, from 1800 to 1850. Uh, London's population, I think, doubled in 50 years. Basically, every major capital in Europe was seeing its population double or triple within a lifetime. It was, so this was not a slow, you know, over 100 or 200 years. It was when I was 20, my city had 150,000, and when I was 40, it had 450,000 people. So this brought all kinds of new stresses and new people. Um, they're also a time of an incredible intellectual ferment. Many of the, of the you know, uh, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of thoughts, expanded suffrage, rights for workers, um, socialism, communism, the, the, the fundamental thinking that undergirds that was really came to fruition um, in, in those years. In fact, you can, you can see kind of the revolution in France kicking it off, and then it spread. Um, and so by the time you get to 1848, these forces just sort of explode. They were set in motion, however, uh, when you have the peace treaties following the Napoleonic Wars. Because when Napoleon lost, the revolution uh, as such lost. It had already been defeated by Napoleon a long time before. But the, but the revolutionary notion was defeated by the forces of reaction. Um, and so most of the governments that were put in place were, were much more conservative often than the governments that had preceded them. And a lot of the impetus of social reform was impeded. Castle Ra and Metternich and, and, and various other figures of the time were conservative to reactionary. 
And so a system was set up that lasted for at least 50 years until 1848, and much of it lasted longer than that. And so uh, you have an old monarchical often, but a top-heavy uh, governing systems that are resistant to change. You have revolutionary fervor, an increased amount of education, industrialization, rapid expansion of cities, a boom in, in agricultural production that allows for the population to be sustained, increases in wealth, all creating this incredible ferment and turmoil. And the values that were generally espoused, and the thing with the revolutions of 1848, is the, the value, there was no, it wasn't coordinated. It was just a sort of spontaneous outburst of resistance. So generally, not invariably, but generally the, the resistance was crushed and nothing, not, either nothing changed or things got worse. But it does set sort of a marker, like, okay, people want these things. People wanted freedom of the press, freedom of religion, capacity to move where they wanted to, protection for workers, um, sort of rights to travel, all sorts of freedoms and popular intellectual ideas that we still celebrate today um, were, were, were being fought for in the streets. And the amazing thing about Max Stirner is he said, all of this is nonsense. Max Stirner was before, against the revolutions that were coming because he thought they were already out of date. And his big book, The Ego on Its Own, the book for which he's famous, to the extent that he's famous, although since nobody knows him, to the extent to which he's not famous, the, the, the book to read, the book du jour, would be The Ego on Its Own. Um, is, and it came out 1844, so four years before you had this incredible fluorescence of popular cultural resistance to conservatism and repression and totalitarianism and all of these bad things, Stirner had come out with a book uh, that basically said, I'm already against the next revolution. Not because he was in favor of what was in existence, but because he thought the answer that was coming was wrong. And he thought the answer that was coming would lead to the Paris attacks that we saw just this last week. It turns out he very well may have been correct. It was an extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily foresightful analysis of his time and the response of it. He was uniquely positioned to make this response because he was in the social milieu that was agitating for revolution. He was Bruno Bauer, again, Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx. He, he knew them. They knew him. He read the journals. He wrote articles that were repressed by the censors, so he understood state censorship. Um, he, was, you know, uh, he, he, saw, he had friends who were on the barricades and, and various revolutionaries. You know, he was right there. And yet he said, I think you've got it fundamentally wrong. And understand his critique and how at variance it was um, is what I want to do tonight, because I think at a, at a moment like this is important to say, wow, 150 years later, we, in some ways, we really haven't changed our, our tact. And so his, his central thesis, if you want, is, um, well, we can read a quote here. Um, it's at the bottom, just under the map, it says, first and foremost, the good cause... Then God's cause, the cause of mankind, of truth, of freedom, of humanity, of justice, further the cause of my people, my prince, my fatherland, finally even the cause of mind, and a thousand other causes. Only my cause is never to be my concern. Shame on the egoist who thinks only of himself. Bruno Bauer's critique is pretty simple. I am the center of the universe. Nothing else matters. I believe in nothing but me. I am unique and uniquely important. And all values, all truths, all necessities, all needs and wants should be measured against myself and myself alone. And it was so radical at the time that when Marx and Engels, when the book came out, they wrote, uh, I was just reading this, I forgot to get the exact number of pages, but it's like two or three times as long as uh, Stirner's book, they wrote a response against it. It infuriated them so much because they said, no, the people have to come together. We come together. Together we form a, a, uh, a democracy or a federation or a fatherland or we form something bigger than ourselves 
that then achieves great things. Sterner, there is nothing bigger than yourself. The biggest thing in the universe is you, or every individual. And the only way to avoid all of the problems that we see is for us to embrace, radically embrace, ourselves as simply the center of all. That's what he's calling for. And if, if again, I'll keep re referencing this, but if you think of the Paris attacks, um, those, the, the people were not being sacrificing themselves for themselves. They were sacrificing themselves for a higher cause. And that's essentially what Stirner is against. He's going to say it over and over again as we go through this. There is no such thing as a higher cause. There's only your cause. And if you believe that, then you can avoid all kinds of evils in the world. So some of his examples. So he says, kind of goes through time, and he says the fundamental problem comes, <coughs> excuse me, comes from our concepts of religion. And he says the notion is that there is this power, which we call God at first, that is greater than us, outside of us, and greater than us. Stirner has no problem with there being powers outside of us. He just doesn't think any of them are greater than us. Even if there were a God, Stirner would say, that's fine, but it's not greater than you. In fact, it's lesser than you. In fact, it's probably irrelevant. You should just not even care because God is so insignificant to your total greatness as to be not worthy of, of your concern. So that sort of attitude he carries to its, you know, just radical extension. But basically he thinks, look, we, there is no such thing as God. Um, and so just get that out of your mind. And he says what's happened is, he calls them spooks. He says our minds are haunted by spooks. At first there's a God. And so we want to do things that please God. Some outside force that needs to be propitiated or sacrificed to. But in any way, we have to do things for the God. And he says this goes from the ancient world all the way through. It's a critique particularly of Christianity in many ways, but not just. He says he's against all of them. He's like, look, any concept of a God is wrong. All you do is you change the flavor and the nuance. And he says, so then what happens is he says, okay, well, well we start saying, well, you know, not God. How about the spiritual? The spirit. Spirit is good. Not any particular God, but the spirit. He's like, okay, if you are the spirit, then that's fine. But if not, oh, that's not fine. There is no spirit. It's another spook. It's outside of you, something's greater than you. It's just a ghost. It's a story to scare little kids. Don't believe it. Set yourself free. There is no, there is no spirit. And he says, and then we go, the, and this is where the liberalism of his time, this is really the birth of modern liberalism, says, well, humankind, humanism, the human, you know, the mankind. He says, I have no use for mankind. Forget mankind. Mankind is just a substitute. You just take out God and put in mankind, and then you have the same thing. I'm not interested in mankind. I'm interested in me. I'm interested in one person. If, 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 if you're interested in mankind, the only person you can't be interested in is yourself, right? It's all the other people count, but not you. Sacrifice yourself for mankind. Mankind, he says, this is just an abstraction. He says, what happens is when you're a child, anything that's immediate, you understand. Anything that's not immediate, you have no concept of. And he says, as you grow up, you get these ideas. Your mind takes over. He says, this isn't wrong, but it misleads us. So that things of the mind, we start, we're going to sacrifice ourselves for things of the mind. Again, spooks. So he says, then, then love. He says, universal love, right? Love is what we should be sacrificing ourselves for. The love of mankind. No, he says, no, no, forget love. That, you should not sacrifice yourself for love. Love is not greater than you. Love is not a good. It, it, again, it's another type of spook. He says, we're just substituting abstract categories for abstract categories. Um, and, and when you do that, you just confuse yourself. Then you get patriotism. 
love of country. There's two good things, love and country. What could possibly go wrong? Right? I see, this is the thing. We think love of our country good, fascism bad. As if the fascists didn't love their country. Well, that's wrong kind of love of your country. Well, Sterner is like, no, just get rid of that. Don't love your country because it's an abstraction. There's a great poem by Pablo Neruda who says, someone asked me if I would fight for my country. I paraphrase, I cannot do his poetry. And I said, uh, no, for certain rivers, a few valleys, and perhaps a mountain or two. Right? And, that, and, that, and that's, the, that's the concrete. That's the real. If, if you love a river, you can fight for it. But to love, to fight for an abstraction, Sterner's like, no, don't do that. That's not you. This is just your mind failing you. So he has this whole critique of basically all the values of liberalism. So this is where he begins with. He says, our mind is haunted by the, these, these specters, these ghosts of abstractions. And if, if you read the Communist Manifesto, uh, it, it begins with the, the, um, a ghost haunting Europe. And, and, he, and Marx says, oh, we want to kill it, but then he, he offers another abstraction to kill it. The Habsburg Empire is this horrible totalitarian, not horrible, but sort of imperial repressive system. How do we, what do we replace it with? Czech nationalism, you know, uh, uh, Polish nationalism, all the nationalisms. He's like, no, that's just substituting. What, why is one nationalism better than an imperial monarchy? What's, this is two flavors of the same sort of abstraction. Where are you in this? You should substitute you for the Habsburg Empire. That's his, that's his argument. That's what you should do. Um, so he says, once you get through this, then you have to start thinking about, well, what does the individual want? How does this manifest itself? And he says, one of the problems we have is we keep saying, well, we want freedom. And he says, freedom, this is incredibly misleading. One of the examples he used, which I think is quite helpful, is freedom of the press. We believe in freedom of the press. That seemed like a good idea. He says, this is a stupid idea. He says, freedom of the press is a bad idea because it's the government allowing you to have freedom of the press. Sterner says, freedom is never asking. If you have to ask, you're not free. And so it turns out that now we know, like uh, Snowden, right, the, the gentleman who, who broke uh, the stories and, and released the information about the government spying on everyone and is now in exile in, in Russia. See, we have freedom of the press, except for things the government doesn't want published, which is kind of a funny kind of freedom of the press, right? But you're free to publish anything the government says is not okay for you to publish, which is exactly... Not, I mean, it is precisely the definition of not freedom of the press. But if you ask us, we say, oh, yes, we have freedom of the press. And Sterner's point is like, no, that's, that freedom of the press means you do not ask. You publish what you want. And by the way, this is someone who was systematically repressed by censors, not surprisingly, by the way. Uh, um, again, he was a revolution or two ahead of his time. So they were censoring the revolutionaries, and Sterner, they didn't even know what to make of. Actually, they have some of the documents of the censors trying to figure out what he is up to. And all they know is it's bad. They're not sure, but they're like, well, you know, I just don't think this is good. It's so, we're not sure what he's driving at, but we're sure it's not what we want. So... Let's center it. So he's always, he's having to move his publication locations around um, and, and change dates on publications and whatnot to try to get around the censors and baffle them. Um, so he knew what press censorship was. But he said, freedom of the press is not the government saying it's okay for you to publish what you want. Freedom of the press is you publishing whatever you want. And it also highlights another aspect. He said, freedom is not an abstraction. We don't want the freedom to have food. We want food. Is it, is it the observation I always make about our healthcare system is we have this whole healthcare system, and everybody talks about how people want health insurance. People do not want health insurance. When they break their arm, they want it treated. This is not wanting health insurance. 
This is exactly what Stirner is saying. He's saying, look, we don't want insurance as an abstraction. We don't want the idea that we could have food. No, if we're hungry, we want food. And so when we, talk, we look at like the press in the United States and we look at someone like Rupert Murdoch or the major corporations that run the news media, we say, well, we have freedom of the press. It's just that no one has access to it. <laughs> and Stirner's like, yeah, this is my point. That is not freedom. That's a stupid kind of freedom. That's freedom as an abstraction. As long as you don't want to publish anything the government doesn't want you to, and as long as you want to have no access to an audience, you're good to go. You have all the freedom you want. So in 1844, Stirner was already against this. I, think, I really do think it's a remarkably foresightful uh, uh, moment in history when he just lays that out. But he, but he, he makes it clear that, that we get confused by this. That, that, that the, the, the notion of freedom, which he's not opposed to, but he says we get it wrong because we think it is something that is either granted from the outside, which it cannot be, only you can make freedom. It cannot be given to you or allowed for you. Um, another way to think of it is everybody is free to, say, climb Mount Everest, give or take. But almost nobody does because we don't want to, which is fine, and, or we can't, which is our own limitations. And he says the freedom to do it is no. It's, it's the doing of it. If you can't actually do it, then the freedom is meaningless. You have to be able to enact it, make it physical, make it your own. And so this, his, his critique of, of freedom and, and this notion that, oh, we want freedom is, is well, it's, you know, it, it's pretty radical even today. Um, I think if, if you look at something, well, we'll talk about it in a second. Then he moves on, he says, all right, so what he, he advocates is, not surprisingly, a kind of radical individualism. In which he says, okay, look, if, if uh, let's say we have free public education, that's great. Um, but what, what if my public education is bad? Well, well, then, as far as Stirner says, then the entire system is broken. Because I rate it by me. And so when we do like uh, testing or whatever in the education system, we always want averages. And students like, that's the system thinking, that's an abstraction. There is no student that performs average. Every student is unique. And if you look from the group, we go, well, on average it's fine. But if you look at the individual, no, he says you cannot do that. The individual needs to stand up and say, no, this is unacceptable for me. I don't care about other people. Um, again, if, if you think of like the Black Lives Matters movement, one of the first responses to it was people said, well, you know, Black Lives Matter. By the way, that should have an exclamation point. It has no punctuation. I don't understand why that is. Because the history of this is Black Lives Matter, shrug, question mark. Um, and so what they mean is Black Lives Matter, exclamation point. They need to get an exclamation point. That's an aside. Um, but, but if you think of the Black Lives Matter movement, one of the first responses of the sort of outside of that, that movement was, no, all lives matter. Not black, all lives matter. This is Sterner. All of Sterner's like, no, 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 wrong. My life matters. If I'm black, my life matters. If I'm white, my life matters. But it upsets us when any small group of people stand up and say, I matter. We want abstract sense of everybody having vague capacities or opportunities or freedoms. When small groups or individuals stand up and say, look, I'm not getting it, we're like, well, on average, how's everybody doing? Well, screw average. We do not care about average. Sterner's like, forget that. We're not doing analysis of sociological systems, which is what we tend to do um, in reporting and, and, and studying. Look at the individual. It's the unemployment rate. I always use the example. If, if I'm unemployed, the unemployment rate is 100%. <laughs> if I have a job, the unemployment rate is zero. This is how we should do these statistics. Um, and, and, but we don't because, it, one, it would be sort of a bit unwieldy. Uh, but, but also, it, it, it's not how we tend to think about these sorts of larger systems. But he, he, he's at pains to point out, by the way, that this does not simply create an ethical vacuum of chaos. Now, the critique of this is like, oh, 
Well, now you have 300 million Americans all just running around naked with guns, setting fire to buildings or whatever it is. You know, that, that, that this would just lead to utter chaos. Another aspect of Stern that's quite remarkable is this is the critique of humanity that comes to us from a certain flavor of Christianity, that humans are bad and that left to their own, they will do wrong things. And so we need systems and laws and order to govern them. Sterner actually believes in good people. He says, basically, you're a good person. You do not need all this order. In fact, it actually does not help you, it hurts you that you're constantly being repressed and, and convinced of these abstractions and taken out of yourself and haunted with spooks. It makes you less than you should be. So uh, another, just to keep with the theme, uplifting theme of terrorism, um, on 9-11, what was it, 12 guys with box knives destroyed the World Trade Center and several 747s and a lot of lives. Now, if people were by nature chaotic, think of how many millions of man hours, the technology, the money investment to build those buildings, to build those airplanes, to keep them flying. It's an incredible example of how cooperative human beings are by nature. We want to work together. We like to work. We build cities. There's no reason for us to have cities. If we couldn't cooperate, if we were by nature chaotic and wanted to tear things down, we wouldn't have cities because it takes 12 guys with box knives to destroy the work millions of man hours and, and resources to produce. And since then, we've put the buildings back up, communally, cooperatively. Sterner says, this is who human beings are. We aren't these terrible you know, animals that have to be caged and straightened and trained and beat or else we'll do something wrong. We're, we're, we're generally good. And he also points out that freedom not only is just an external issue, but it's an internal issue. If you do not control your desires, you are not free. Then you are an animal. If you allow any single, like, lust for food to control you, then you've lost your freedom. Now you're not your own. You've lost yourself. This is not you in your totality. This is one part of you overwhelming the rest of you. That's not freedom. That's not you being in control. That is terrible. He says, if you get a fixed idea, say, killing people for Allah, this is not freedom. This is you being overwhelmed by an idea, by a spook, by a ghost. And, and you are not expressing your totality. And he says, what our civilization has tended to do is try to repress various aspects of ourselves. Food is not bad. But if you get overwhelmed by the lust of food, that is bad. So we, oh, well, we try to hedge that in. But he says, that doesn't mean you give up your desire for food. That means you control, control it. Because it is part of you. You do not resist this. So when he, when he talks about radical individualism, he doesn't mean an ethical vacuum. He means you really expressing the greatest possible version of you that you can. And he just doesn't think we're the best possible versions of ourselves when our various animal desires overwhelm us, when our fears overwhelm us, when a single idea, romantic love, I will kill myself, you know, so Romeo and Juliet. Juliet is what, 13 when she dies for Romeo? I think it's 12, 12 or 13, I always forget. It's preposterously young. But we love that idea. Oh, she sacrificed herself for love. Sterner's like, no, that is the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> this is not the complete expression of a fully integrated, powerful, uplifted, well individual. This is a social pathology. And, and you should not ought kill yourself at 12 when you think that your, 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 your boyfriend um, is dead. You know, that, that's, that is just a mistaken concept. And he says, if, if you work on your own, you measure it by yourself, then you say, wow, I'm really upset that my boyfriend's dead. But that's okay, I'm still here. 
And I'm God and I'm the universe, so that's plenty. Yeah, and this, so this, this concept does not create an ethical vacuum. We think it creates an ethical vacuum because we're so in, ingrained in us, the idea that if we don't have rules, chaos descends. But Sterner points out, um, he says, look, people like to have friends. This is a glorious part of being a human being. If you are such an egoist that you damage your capacity to have friends, again, you're not being your whole self. You're not being true to yourself. You're being tricked, either by yourself or by your society in some way. And that's what he's really concerned with. Now, the greatest extreme this would lead to, like if, if, if you have a sociopath killing people, you, he could use Sterner as and say, look, well, you know, look, this says, Sterner says I should just do what I want. It's like, yeah, and there are sociopaths. And that has to be addressed and dealt with. But most people are not sociopaths. This is what Sterner's talking about. We shouldn't behave as if everybody is a sociopath when almost no one is a sociopath. It's a, it's a misleading sense of who we are. And so one of the things that also grows out of this is the people who do love Sterner, who read Sterner and sort of keep the Sterner uh, flame burning, are anarchists. Because he was so resistant to all this. But the thing is, he wasn't, I, I would argue, I don't think he was an anarchist. He's not against social systems. He's against having to subsume yourself to a social system. He didn't, he didn't ascribe to any of the anarchist causes which were around. He, would, he, I mean, he wasn't a joiner, let's put it that way. <laughs> not surprisingly, not much of a joiner. And because the anarchists tend to be well organized and have big groups, Sterner would almost certainly not have wanted to associate with them. Because he's, he's like, look, I, I'm, I don't believe in the cause of anarchism. Because it's an abstraction. Social governments are real. Don't be confused about that. Human beings, we've had governments going back for as long as we have history. Social groupings. He's not against social groupings. He's not against cities. He's against the inversion of values that tells you that there's something more important than yourself. And so then he, he concludes his, his argument um, the end of the last chapter of this, a very short chapter, the last chapter of the ego in its own is called the unique one. And he, and he just basically says in there, look, the, to really get a grab, grip on this, just think, I am unique. I am the only thing. I am the only one. Everything is measured against me. This is, this is what I mean. Is it mine? Do I control it? Do I possess it? Can I destroy it or keep it or withhold it or throw it away as I see fit? If yes, good. If no, it either has nothing to do with me or don't lie to me and tell me that it does. I, it, it's not mine if I cannot dispose of it as I see fit. So curious this leads to he's a very strong proponent of private property, oddly, <laughs> for, for a social radical in every way because he says, look, if I can't control it and do with it as I see fit, then it's not mine. Absolutely no use for this notion of communal property. He's like, well, sharing is great, but then what part is mine? That's his question. Very straightforward. I don't, you know, everybody wants to share, but who makes the rules about sharing? Right? Again, think of it when people talk about uh, income disparity, right? It's, it's a big topic these days. What's funny, all men are created equal as long as you don't count money. Which is a funny thing not to count in a society almost entirely denominated by money, right? And, and that's where he says, well, who sets up the rules? Well, we've set up a rule where everybody's equal and we have to share everything except for the cash. And of course, it's the cash that we care about. So it's like freedom of the press to publish anything that doesn't upset the government. You know, freedom, equality of, of everybody being created equal except for with money. It's, just, it's a weird exception. Sort of an exceptional exception, I would say, in this kind of society. And Sterner's saying, I didn't want to get rid of that. He's just like, look, you, you have to look at the rules. And most of the rules, most of the time, don't seem to say you're really important and what you want is what matters. The government, the school, the, the commune, the, the, again, he was at the birth there of socialism and communism and all the various isms of the time. He was right there and he was like, no, I don't, I don't like any of them. 
I don't want to have to subsume myself to any cause whatsoever, not even to the cause of trying to spread sternerism. He, he, would, be, he would have been opposed to sternerism because he said, that's mine. It's not yours. It's mine. So, so go away. You know, that's the... Uh, uh, um, you know, that's the sort of clear idea that he has there. And so he presents this just stunning, I think quite powerful critique. And, I, and I, the limits, some of their limitations, I want to look at this real quickly. It is a powerful critique. In fact, I think reading uh, Ego and His Own is sort of like, it's like walking, not knowing how thirsty you are when you've been working on a hot day. And then as soon as you start drinking water, you realize you're really thirsty because it's completely out of a different take. He's not liberal, he's not a conservative, he's not a communist or a socialist or a capitalist or a bureaucrat. He's, he's just like, ooh, he's sterner. And he's coming out of this very incredibly different place. And his critique resonates in many ways. Unfortunately, but not surprisingly, it's an almost entirely negative critique, which is to say he says what's bad and he says, what's good is you, but it's not really nearly as well developed as what's bad. So in, in, in 300 pages, there's about 292 pages of what's bad. Uh, eight pages, seven and a half pages saying, you're really great, and not a lot of working out of what that means. Um, and so that is definitely a limitation, but it is a challenge, because any systematic of working out of what it means would, of course, be a system. And then we would be in trouble because he would be opposed to that. Because what was good and what it meant for him may not be what's good and what it means for you. Oddly, I think, in many ways, he's actually articulated where we are. But it tends to be the kind of things we hate. We say, well, everybody's just an individual. Everybody's just out for their own. Sterner would say, good. People just move around willy-nilly, go wherever they want, do what they want. Sterner would say, great. People have no connection with the past. Good, that's a spook. People, uh, in fact, I, I do a poll of my students every year, and it's remarkable. I say, ask how many of my students um, either plan to or would be perfectly happy to, to, to leave the United States and not live here again. And, and almost all of them raise their hands. They're not planning to leave the United States. They just don't see any reason why they wouldn't if they had the opportunity. They have almost no attachment to country. This is going to have ramifications. It's, it, and there's other sources of evidence that this is true, that the coming generation has essentially no sense that America is someplace that you would be attached to. I mean, what does it mean if you have a country of people, none of whom care that they're in the country? Like, zero sense of patriotism. I, I don't know what happens, but it's certainly a fascinating experiment. This is how monarchies fail, by the way. Monarchies failed when people just stopped believing in kings. And it's not clear exactly why historically this happens all the time, but apparently, you know, there's just times in history when the people are just like, king, huh, we don't believe it anymore. And then that's it. I mean, when, when, when people say that, your monarchy really is done because you have no heft, you have no sort of voice or power to, to sway opinion, and, and, and then pretty soon you get some other form of government, either less good or, or better, but... You're done. Um, and so these sorts of critiques that, that we tend to get, throw against ourselves of radical individualism, of people giving up all their ties, of you know, less attendance to religion and less spirituality, and uh, people moving around, not attached to their families, not attached to their place, not attached to their country. Sterner would say, good, 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 good. That's all good. Because most of that is just spooks just ghosts, things that you've been sold, you've been convinced of, they don't come from you. One of the experiments he suggests, not just Sterner, but other places, is take any uh, religious system and ask yourself, left to your own devices, would you have come up with that? If no, it's not a good religion for you. Would you have written that book, those books, that collection, the, the Rig Vedas, would you have thought of that? You know, would that, would that be like, mm, probably not. So, Forget it. It's not, it's not you. It's not from you. And so throw it over. And so back to the Paris attacks. When we ponder this, we say, okay, here's some, some young people. Usually this is young people, by the way, because they have that ideal. This is idealism made concrete. 
This is where the auto-de-fe, act of faith, by the way, that's what that means, auto-de-fe, when you used to burn people alive, it was an act of faith, and you did it to help them. You felt good about burning them alive because you were doing them a favor. Um, if, if, and we think, oh, wow, we've, we're, we don't do that anymore. Oh, yes, we do, apparently. We still do do this. These people have an idea, and they think that they're doing good. They're helping people. Because there's this ideal abstraction, whether it's a religious conception of heaven or a certain feeling of obligation that they have that's been impressed on them. It's nothing concrete, because it's obviously they aren't doing anything concrete besides killing people. And most of them, if you ask them, they say, do you believe in killing random people? They're like, no. That's not a good thing. Ah, unless it's tied to this abstraction, this conception of faith. But we struggle because our only response has tended to be another abstraction. Well, they need to be versed and educated in the ways of liberalism, or democracy, or freedom, or humanitarianism, or love. Right? It's anything but asking them, helping them, listening to them. What, what, what do you want? Why do you want that? Where does that desire come from? Right? Would you do this on your own? We tend not to think of it or look at it that way. So we'll respond, as we have historically, uh, just as people did in 1848 when faced with these revolutionary uprisings. It was one isms versus another isms. And we tend to prefer our isms, and often they're quite preferable, I would argue. There's many reasons to believe that they are, are better, but they're not of a different flavor, and they do not get out of this sort of strange dialectic of moving between this ism and that ism and this contrast and that contrast. And, you know, he, and Stirner really does bring this other and strange light to shine on this corner of our thinking, where he says, you know, get rid of the spooks. There's another long quote I thought I wanted to give you just, to, just to, on the back there. By the way, this picture of, of, of Stirner was sketched by Friedrich Engels. So I like that because it's sort of, there's a moment in history for you. Max Stirner as sketched by Friedrich Engels. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. Man, your head is haunted. You have wheels in your head. You imagine great things and depict yourself a, a whole world of God that has an existence for you, a spirit realm to which you suppose yourself to be called, an ideal that beckons to you. You have a fixed ideal. Do not think that I am jesting or speaking figuratively when, when I regard these, those persons who cling to the higher, and because the vast majority belongs under this head, almost the whole world of men as veritable fools, fools in a madhouse. What is it then that is called a fixed idea? An idea that has subjected man to itself. When you recognize, with regard to such a fixed idea, that it is folly, you shut its slave up in an asylum. And is the truth of faith, say, which we are not to doubt, the, of, the majesty of the censor, is, um, oh, the majesty of people which are not to strike at, he who does is guilty of, laissez majesty, virtue against which the censor is not to let a word pass, that morality may be kept pure, are these not fixed ideas? Is not all the stupid chatter of most of our newspapers and the babble of fools who suffer from the fixed idea of morality, legality, Christianity, etc., and only seem to go about free because the madhouse in which they walk takes in so broad a space? So this is a very generous and open critique. <laughs> right? This is, a, this is a, a, um, a brick to throw at everyone, I, I think. It's, it's sort of the universal brick throwing. But, but this is his concept. When we have fixed ideas that come from outside of us, but we act as if they're real, we're deluded. If my fixed idea is that, oh, I don't know, um, I'm walking on the moon, and I behave like that and wear an astronaut suit all the time, and I won't open it up because I'm afraid I'll suffocate, they'll eventually take me away and get me some help. Because they'll say, you're not walking on the moon. Then you go to the madhouse. And what, he, what, what Sterner is saying is, look, but there's so many ideas that we have that bear no more scrutiny than this that we should all be in the madhouse. And that really we are in the madhouse. Like he says, we just don't notice because it is the whole country. Right? It's just it's so big 
that we, we don't recognize. It's a madhouse with very large borders. And like I said, that's why I used the example earlier of freedom of the press, because we believe we have freedom of the press. Almost no one controls the press, a few large companies, a few rich people, and the government doesn't let you print what you want. I mean, Snowden is in exile for trying to do that. Other than that, we have freedom of the press, which is not freedom of the press. There's no, there's, it's, by, it's by definition not freedom, but we believe we have it, and that's what matters. And he says, these sorts of just powerful delusions. And the, curiously, he doesn't even care about freedom of the press. This, I should mention this. Sterner's not like advocating. He would like there to be freedom of the press, but he's not advocating for it. He's just saying it's wrong to think that you have it when you don't. If you don't have it, you should recognize that and go, oh, no, we don't have it. That's fine. I don't care. If you care, you care. Sterner says, if you care, then care. If you don't care, don't care. But don't be deluded. Don't get it into your mind that you have something, this fixed idea, and ponder, and, and ponder this. Because this is what it leads to, by the way, this is um, the critique, you see, one of the things I always believe is every time someone tries to come up with something that's pure or right or just, because humans are involved, the only way to achieve it is to kill them as you fast as you possibly can. Right? Communism would work except for that people are greedy and self-interested. So you have to kill them and beat it out of them until the abstraction works. Right? This is the history of all these great ideas and systems is almost always this, this history of repression and punishment and torture because it's not human. Humans are greedy. For good or ill, we are. Humans like to do strange things. Um, that many systems like to say, no, we shouldn't. People shouldn't be, anytime somebody says that, by the way, people shouldn't be like that. This is a denial of reality. It's the madhouse. Or anytime there's a terrible act, people say, well, that's barbaric, or that's animals, or that's inhuman. That's what we like to tell ourselves. Oh, that's inhuman. Well, the history of the world demonstrates, no, that is absolutely right in the main line of the human. That's the problem that we need to look at. And saying that that's not what humans do is to delude ourselves. And what keeps us from recognizing this and, and, and focusing on it is all these fixed, these spooks, these ghosts, these wheels in our heads. These beliefs that it's, that it's, that it's all going to uh, you know, somehow magically turn out better or be okay or that everyone's going to wake up tomorrow and love their nature, love their neighbor. Love nature, embrace the environment, everything's going to be fine. Some people just don't care. Some people do. You know, and how do you address that? He argues not by invoking all of these sort of mystical, magical thinking. Um, and so finally, I think if you go back to the, 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 the Revolution of 1848, um, you know, we do live in this surprisingly and suddenly quite turbulent time in, in the late 90s. Oh, God, what's his name? I can never remember his name. Uh, um, he, wrote, uh, he wrote The End of History and The Last Man. And it was an argument. Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama. One of the dumbest books ever written. Um, and in which he, he wrote, it was a bestseller. He works at the RAND, I think he still works for the RAND company, RAND Research Corporation. And he argued that, you know, liberal democracy had won the day and, and laissez-faire capitalism had won. So we know what the best form of government is and we know what the best form of economy is. And, and now all that's going to happen is everybody's going to adopt it and we're going to work out the bugs. Hence, history has come to an end, a Hegelian idea. Um, and I thought, wow, history suggests that never happens, right? History always seems to come up with something new that's going to bother us and certainly that's where we are. And so from a very status quo sorts of situation, which is what Europe felt like after the Napoleonic Wars, people looked around and said, we dodged that bullet, we've got everything set up, we've got these, everything, we're, we're doing well. Um, and then in 1848, they realized, oh, we're not doing that well. And I think we're in another time period like that, where you know, we thought there for about 15 or 20 years, Oh, we've got this, we've got, you know, everything's going great, it's all settled, we've, we've answered the problem. We don't need to think anymore, we can all relax and have a beer, life is good. And then it turns out, 
incorrect. And I think we're kind of depressed about that. I don't think we should be depressed about that because that's pretty much history, right? History is this sequence of problems and humans and troubles and, and then we work and do the best that we can. And this is what Sterner is really trying to drive at. Try and get these large abstractions as much as possible out of your mind and ask yourself, what does it have to do with me? How does it influence me? Do I actually care? Can I do anything about it? Do I want to do anything about it? What would I enjoy doing? Would it aid me to do this? Is it fun? Is it relaxing? Does it make me feel good? Does it help my friends out? Do my friends want to do it? And for him, that's really basically the list of questions you should ever ask. Does it help me grow? Does it help me thrive? Does it make me a bigger and better person? If yes, probably a good thing to do. If no, probably not a good thing to do. And if you set that as your bar for everything, and he means everything, then he says you'll have, a, if nothing else, a much clearer understanding of the world. You'll no longer be confused by all kinds of abstractions because you'll be measuring them always against a concrete real, which is you. You're the center of the universe. You are the measure that you can give against everything. And so you kind of have the, the, the dream of the universal weight or the universal measure. So you can say, how does this affect me? And you can say, yes, no, good, bad, indifferent. And you'll always know. And therefore, you'll always be grounded. Now, there's any number of critiques you can make of Sterner, and many have been made, and many more will be made, I'm sure. But I think it is important, and one reason I think it's unfortunate that he has been forgotten, and I hope that, that more people remember him, is because it is such a refreshing change from just about everything we get almost all the time that it is sort of like, it's like a vitamin. I'm not sure you should take lots of vitamins every day, but it's probably good for you to take some vitamins every once in a while, right? So there you have it, the life of Max Sterner. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.